I really appreciate, where did Pat go? I really appreciate it when the prayer prays for me, uh, for the, the lesson that I deliver and that I will do it well and that the hearers will hear it well. I always appreciate that in a particular way because I know, and you know, if you've been here for any length of time, that I say stuff wrong sometimes, right? And I am sometimes a little confusing, and I understand. Uh, but I know that God, of course, can help us to understand what's being taught, and I also pray that he will help us to do so. So the, the beginning this week and into, I don't know, eight weeks maybe. I don't know. It's, it's very, we can really have a variable amount of sermons on this. We're going to start a series on one another Christianity, uh, the passages that relate to one another, that relate to, to the social aspect of our Christianity. The phrases one another and each other, which are uh, slightly different in the original, occur around 120 times in the New Testament. That's a, a lot. But to be fair, a lot of those, of course, are like narrative glue, where uh, they said to one another, like the disciples, they said to one another, and then uh, let's go to this place. Like, so some of them are that, a lot of them are that. But a lot of them, especially in the epistles, the letters, these one another passages are the backbone of the relational aspect of, of Christian life, right? How we treat one another. So when we focus on this uncommon, or not uncommon, unfortunately common idea, give me Jesus but not the church. Have you ever heard people say that? Raise your hand if you've ever heard someone say that. Or, or something like it, maybe not this exact phrase, but you're talking to somebody about Christianity, and you're talking to people about Jesus, and you're talking to people about the church, and the idea that, well, yeah, I know I believe in Jesus, I believe in the Bible, but I, I just don't want to go to church, or I don't want to be a part of a church family. Why? Why do people have that attitude? Now, if I'm being charitable or gracious in my judgments of people, then I would say people probably have this attitude because nobody's perfect, right? Raise your hand if you've been hurt by somebody in this building. I've been hurt by people here. We're all hypocrites, right? Raise your hand if you're a hypocrite sometimes. Everybody's hand should be up. Get your hands up, guys. You're all a bunch of hypocrites. I'm a hypocrite. And when I say hypocrite, what do I mean by that? We all profess to believe in Jesus. We all profess to say and, and to believe in the Bible, but none of us follow the Bible perfectly because we're not perfect. So I guarantee you that in this room, there's somebody who's hurt you or done something bad to you or, or mistreated you in, a, in some way. So I understand why people perhaps have this attitude, oh, the church is just a bunch of hypocrites. But, of course, what? We're told to bear with one another. That's one that we'll look at. Forgive one another. That's another that we'll look at. And to, of course, improve and confess our sins to one another. That's another one that we'll look at. So graciously, I think, yeah, some people have this idea because they've been hurt by people in the past, and they've seen the hypocrisy in the church, and I understand that to a certain degree. But if I'm thinking ungraciously when people say this, they just don't want to be accountable to anybody else, right? Because fundamentally, that's what this is about, holding one another accountable for righteousness, for following God's law, that we're doing this together and, and we need to do it and we need to be righteous and we need to be lights in the world and we need to be good examples. And when I mess up, I need you to tell me, hey, Chris, you messed up. You shouldn't have done that. You need to be doing this instead. And guess what? You need me to do that too because we all need that. Again, because none of us are perfect, right? 
So when we think about this idea of relational Christianity, one another Christianity, we're going to see a couple of things today. This is the introductory lesson. Christianity is an endeavor that actually, it's not just optional, it requires other people from the very beginning. And we're going to go through very quickly the process of conversion, the process of salvation, or, or some of the processes of salvation. And you think about the common things, right? Hear, believe, repent, confess, be baptized. Well, let's look at a couple of those, beginning in Romans 10, 14 through 17. How, they will, how, will they, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, so faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Romans 10. You look at this passage. Who are the other people that are required? Because there's some requirement for some other people here, right? Well, if you're thinking about the potential converts, their requirement is that they hear the word. Now, I've, I've said this often before. There is one instance, I know of one instance personally, that a person just picked up their Bible and they decided to read and they decided to figure out what it was and they decided to see what it ta taught and they read it for a while and they came and they said, hey, I want to be baptized and that was it. One time. Have you ever heard of that happening? Have that ever happened to anybody that you know that they just sort of read it one day and came and said, oh, I, I figured it all out. I want to be baptized. No. Because 99% of the time, it's somebody else teaching them, right? Most of the time, that's how it happens. And there's even another level to this, right? How will they hear, believe unless they are here? And how will they hear unless they're, uh, they're taught? And well, I, I should not be paraphrasing. I can just read it right here. Uh, and how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless this other group of people, what? Unless they are sent. Sent by somebody. Now, you could say sent by God, perhaps. But a lot of teaching happens because the church enables the teacher, right? This level of people involvement who are enabling and helping and, and facilitating the teaching, who are sending the preachers, right? How many different preachers do we support through our money? And you're supporting me through not just money, but through fellowship and through encouragement and through all of these ways that you enable me to do my thing. So, just in this verse alone, we see there is a requirement for some other people to be involved if you're going to be a Christian. In this case, the people who teach you and the people who send the teachers. Uh, Matthew 10, 32, we talk about confession, right? So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Matthew 10, 32 through 33. Who's the other people involved here? If I'm going to confess, what needs to be present? Another person to confess to, right? Now, this could apply in two ways. We could think about the confessing that we do before the world, the lost, which is an important thing. But we also think about the confessing that we do to one another. And if I'm going to confess to you, I've got to be around someone to confess to. Otherwise, I can't do that, right? I cannot fulfill that requirement. I cannot fulfill this command if I am not around people to whom I can confess, right? Acts 8, when they believed Philip as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, we're going to look at three passages on baptism. They were baptized, both men and women, even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, Acts 8, 12. 
We look at another verse, and Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, Acts 2.38. One more, as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? Acts 8.36. So we've seen hearing requires other people. Confessing requires other people. Belief is a choice that you make for what it's worth. Repentance is also a choice that you make, right? You make that choice to live according to God's will. But then what's the commonality in this idea of baptism? This is a passive sense, right? To be baptized, being baptized, as opposed to what? What would be the active sense? To baptize, right? I baptize. Nowhere in the entirety of the New Testament is there the idea that somebody baptizes themselves. It's not there doesn't exist. Which means on a very fundamental level, if I'm going to be a Christian and, and follow this command to be baptized, what? Somebody else is going to have to be involved to do the baptizing, right? In each of the, and, and we just read three. We could read over and over. You can just go through and if you have a, it's as easy if you have a Bible program on your phone, just search baptized and you'll see over and over and over the person that is being immersed into Christ is having that done to them by a, a different person. So you look at just the mechanisms by which we become Christians, and you see the requirement at several of these steps for there to be somebody else involved. So what's the point when we think about one another Christianity? The point's quite simple, right? There's no example of anyone becoming a Christian by themselves. Why would we think then it would be possible to be a Christian by yourself? Now, I was talking to my father about this because he's a good person to talk to. There are, we can always think of these what-if scenarios. And he and I came up with a couple what-if scenarios. What if you become a Christian and then you get, you, you, you are in a, a plane crash on a desert island and nobody else is around but you. Okay, sure. Yeah, I guess then because literally there's no one else around, you'll just be a Christian until you die or until you're rescued. Uh, or we thought of another scenario. You become a Christian and then you move to a place where there's no Christians. And so you're having to be a Christian by yourself. But even in that scenario, what are you supposed to do? In the scenario of I've become a Christian, I've moved to a place where there's no Christians, What's my job? I need to convert other people so that there would be other Christians that I would be with. So even if I am a Christian by myself, I'm trying to make sure that that's not the case anymore, right? I'm trying to convert people so that there would be other people who would be Christians with me, who I could then worship God with and serve. So at the, yes, we could think of all these outlier scenarios, but at the end of the day, God has designed Christianity to be a social group endeavor. And if it is not a social group endeavor, then our number one priority is to convert more people so that it is. You cannot and should not try to be a Christian by yourself. It is an inherently social experience. Acts uh, 2.42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. This is one verse in Acts 2.42. There's a, a different, bunch of different verses that talk about this, right? One of the key components of their devotion was fellowship, being together. And in Acts, you can read this over throughout the book of Acts, right? 
that they were in, in, in each other's homes day to day, breaking bread and having Thanksgiving, and they were having favor with all the people, and they were spending a lot of time together. They were all in Solomon's portico at one point the, uh, in the temple courtyards, and they were being together all of the time. Being dev- I like the word devoted here. Something that you deeply care about. Something that you pursue, right? Something that you work hard to be a part of. Well, yeah, the apostles' teaching, I need to work hard to make sure I understand the teaching. I need to work hard to make sure when we talk about breaking of bread, I think it's talking about the Lord's Supper in this particular context, that we need to make sure that we're here to participate in the Lord's Supper, that we're doing that the way God wants. We need to be devoted, working hard to make sure that we pray and, and being caring about praying and, and putting prayer at a high priority. But included with those other things is fellowship that I care about and want and desire and work for fellowship with my fellow Christians, right? Uh, So as we think about this one another Christianity, a lot of the New Testament is devoted to how do we treat one another, right? 1 Corinthians 5, I want to read a couple of, these are, uh, this is a set of texts in 1 and 2 Corinthians here. 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 13, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. He's saying, don't go out of the world. Stay in the world. Why? What we talked about earlier. If you're the only Christian in a community, you don't just go live off in the woods somewhere and be a Christian by yourself. You need to be in the world so you can convince other people to be in the kingdom of God with you. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or idolater, reviler, drunkler, swindler, a list of sins here. Not even to eat with such a one. What have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. This is 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 13. The end of the story is in 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 2, 5 through 8. If anyone has caused pain, he's thinking about this person he talked about in 1 Corinthians. He has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. When you do wrong things, it affects all of us. It's not just yourself. It's not just you and your immediate family. When you refuse to live according to God's word, you hurt everyone in this congregation in some way. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. What was the punishment by the majority? Well, it was this thing, right? Don't even eat with that person. Don't let them be in your midst. Don't let them be with you. Put them out of the, uh, the assembly. That was the punishment by the majority, right? So you should rather turn and forgive them and comfort him, so, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I beg you to reaffirm your love for him, 2 Corinthians 2, 5 through 8. What is he saying here? And what's the point of this in our own context? We should be so devoted to fellowship, so invested in our relationships with one another, that when we do not have that fellowship, it hurts. He's talking about disfellowshipping as a punishment because it hurts and would convince the sinner, I miss my family. I want to be with my family. What am I doing wrong that's keeping me from my family? In this case, it was the guy who was sleeping with his, his father's wife, probably a, a stepmom or something like that. And he would think to himself, what? Oh, I need to change my actions. Otherwise, I won't be able to be with my Christian family. 
And that's the point, right? We should care so much about Christian fellowship that when it is taken from us, it hurts us in a visceral way. Enough to convince us to reevaluate our lives. Why am I doing, why am I being outcast by my family? What, what am I doing wrong? And, and uh, hopefully, if you then go and ask somebody, they'll say, oh, this is why, because you're engaging in this, this, or this activity, and we can't be associated with that because of the purity of God's standard, and, and this is what we need. And if it hasn't been made clear, articulated right, then we've done it wrong. We need to be very clear about these things so that everybody understands what's happening. But the point is very clear that fellowship should be something we crave enough so that when it is taken, it hurts. Does it hurt when you do not get to be with fellow Christians? And if the answer is no, I would submit you are probably not devoted to fellowship. If it does not hurt you to be absent from your brothers and sisters in Christ, you are not devoted to fellowship. You just aren't. Now, why does this matter so much? A couple of dangers as we conclude this. There's a couple of dangerous things about trying to do Christianity by yourself. 1 Peter 5, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Now, a couple of things about this text in 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9. What does a lion want, fundamentally? A lion wants easy prey, right? I saw an interesting video. I should have put it in my sermon, but I didn't. Uh, it was a video that was passing around Facebook, I think, or maybe Reddit, about a zebra. A zebra had sort of gotten wandered away from the herd, and the lion had pounced on it, and then the, another zebra came in, rushed in, and really fought the lion. It was kind of amazing, really. The zebra was headbutting the lion and trying to kick the lion, and the lion's like, fine, forget this. You can just have him back. I'll go find some other food, right? That's, the devil is like that. He wants easy prey. So when I think about myself as a Christian, one who is having to resist the devil, because that's what it says, right? Resist him. Why would I want to make myself... A delicious, easy meal for the lion. If I'm in a herd of animals, I'm a zebra. I'm going to stick with my fellow zebra people because I don't want that lion who's prowling around out there to just be like, oh, there's an easy meal. Chris is so delicious. I'm going to go eat him and then I die and that's it. Now spiritually, seriously, you laugh, but spiritually it's the same idea, isn't it? As soon as I wander away from the congregation, I'm all isolated and by myself, that's when the devil's going to go for the jugular of my faith, and I'll be overcome by temptation or by the world or by the, the three things in John, right? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Remaining with you guys, remaining with my fellow Christians, that's how I avoid that grisly fate. Because the devil's going to be like, oh, look at him. He's surrounded by people who are encouraging and people who hold him accountable and people who will point out when I'm tempting him, people who will make it very difficult for me. This is the devil talking, right? People who will make it very difficult for me to convince him to forsake Christianity. Oh, I'm going to go find some other prey. Isn't that what we're, we're going for? And, and incidentally, the other, the other side of this, right? We who are in the assembly, we who are in the fellowship, when we see a wandering Christian... We need to be like that second zebra who goes and gets that, that wandering Christian, right? Go get them and bring them back. 
Or I guess we could just abandon them and leave them to the devil. That doesn't seem very Christian. That doesn't seem like what God would want us to do. But I fear that that's the attitude we have, right? Oh, they're just on their own. Forget them. No. We need to be worried and watchful for people like that. Hebrews 10, 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. In this, I have this in the guided devotional for this week. If you don't know what the guided devotional is, in the bulletin, I try to do every week uh, a thing you can do either at home or with your kids, some things you can think about and, and some conversation starters. And I have in there one of the things in there what in this text indicates that he's talking about Sunday? Nothing, right? There's nothing in this text that indicates it would be first day of the week. Meeting together is a thing that we should do more than just one day a week. And we get into the habit of neglecting to meet together. That starts with you get in the habit of I only come Sunday and Wednesday and I only fellowship with Christians Sunday and Wednesday. That's the beginning of the habit. Then the habit devolves into, oh, I'm just going to go be with other Christians on Sunday. I don't need to be there Wednesday. And then before you know it, that habit develops into what? I never spend time with other Christians. Why do we need to do that? What's the danger? To consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. If I'm not with you, you cannot stir me up. And I can't stir you up. So am I going to be encouraged? No, I'm going to really, what's going to happen is I'm going to be discouraged because I'm missing that vital element of love and good works that I find with my fellow Christians. So just from these passages today, if we just take, and this has just been a cursory examination, right? We haven't really dug deep into any of these passages. Just from this cursory examination of one another Christianity, we see, one, that we are to teach one another, Romans 10, right? How are they going to believe if they haven't heard? And how are they going to hear unless they're taught, right? We're to confess to one another, Matthew 10. Uh, if you deny me before other people, if you acknowledge me before other people. So that's a responsibility we have. We're supposed to be devoted to one another, Acts 2. We're supposed to hold each other accountable. Because what is happening in 1 Corinthians 5 and 2 Corinthians 2, if not holding each other accountable? Hey, you're committed to sin, and we can't just let that go, and, and you need to change your behavior. And the end result of that punishment is going to be you can't be with us. Right? We're holding each other accountable. Somebody, I, I don't know, I, I don't know where I heard this recently. So I was talking to somebody, might have been at Red River. I don't know. Everything just runs together in my brain. Uh, the idea of it's none of your business. Eh, your righteousness is my business if I'm supposed to hold you accountable for sin. If, I'm, if we're supposed to hold each other accountable to righteousness, then yeah, when you are committing a sin that is affecting the church, it's my business, right? Protecting one another. 1 Peter 5, that I'm responsible for, and this goes to holding each other accountable, right? That I am fundamentally supposed to care about how you relate to God. Uh, and we've seen encouraging one another. Hebrews 10, I'm responsible for encouraging you. We need each other. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to look at how we are supposed to relate to one another, what we are responsible for in relation to each other. Trying to be a Christian by yourself is a doomed effort from the very beginning. It's not going to work. It's going to fail miserably and spectacularly. 
So why would we try to do that? And I, I'm worried that some of us are, are maybe wandering toward that route. You're not there yet, hopefully, if you're here at least. You have some fellowship. But each of us needs to be realizing that the more we try to do this by ourselves, the less we are engaged with other Christians, the harder it's going to be to be a child of God. It's just going to be tough the more we try to do it by ourselves. What do we owe to each other? What does God expect of the fellowship of his children? These are the things that we're going to look over the next few weeks as we look at the one another passages. And, and ultimately, are you trying to do it by yourself? I don't know. And this is something that requires self-evaluation, right? Are you devoted to this assembly, to the group of people here? Devoted to being with one another? And if you're just being with one another one hour a week on Sunday... Not sure that counts as devotion, really. Now, I understand we have lives and we get busy and, and things happen. I understand that. But if we're devoted to it, that means we're going to try to fix it and try to make an effort at least, make an effort. Not that we succeed all the time. We know that. We don't succeed all the time. But that we're trying to be social Christians with one another, not just at the bare minimum— but as much as we can, being with one another so that we're not going to be subject to these dangers. So the conclusion, is, and it's sort of backdoor invitation, right? I sort of started with the invitation as we've gone through these different elements of what it requires to be a Christian, hearing the word and believing and, and confessing and repenting and being baptized. We've looked at the passages that talk about that today. There's plenty of people in this room who would help you do that, right? Plenty of people in here who would help you accomplish those things as it was designed by God. If you have not taken those steps, what is the thing that's holding you back? 